This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. No matter what you know or think about Jesus, the part of his story that must take center stage is his death and what comes after. If you think that's the end, well, then Jesus is not who he claimed to be because he predicted he would not stay in the grave. But if you believe Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to many, including his disciples, and gave both comfort and hope to his followers, then you must celebrate the week that changed the world. Pastor Pierre Rosa takes this Easter season message to remind us of what our Savior, Jesus Christ, said from the cross to express God's compassion for a lost world. And he'll recount the words of the risen Christ and what that means for us today. It's worth celebrating. Let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. Let's listen to the words that changed the world, spoken in the week that changed the world, and see what they reveal about the heart of Christ. We're going to start by looking at the words from Christ on the cross. So we'll start with words from the crucified Christ. The gospel writers record seven specific utterances from Christ during his six hours on the cross. Three of those were prayers directed to the Father, and he addresses three different people during this time. In one of these utterances, he declares his humanity, and in another one, he makes a proclamation to the entire world to know. So let's start with the first one. Sometime in the first three hours of his crucifixion, Jesus prayed for his Jewish and Roman persecutors. He said this according to Luke 23, verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now, church, this is not a typical reaction of a victim of false accusations. Now, you and I would say something totally different. We would say, Father, punish them for what they do, because we know the background of the story, and we know the identity of the one being executed. But Christ is simply applying what he said to his disciples earlier in Matthew 5, verse 44, when he instructed them, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And because Jesus always prays according to God's will, the Father granted his request. Matthew tells us that the Roman soldiers guarding the cross concluded towards the end of that time that Jesus was the Son of God in Matthew 27, verse 54. And Luke reports that one of these men was a centurion, and he said this in Luke 23, verse 47, that he began praising God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And Luke also tells us that several days later, at the preaching of Peter, many Jews came to Christ at the feast of Pentecost. So the compassion of Christ towards undeserving sinners moved his heart to forgive them on the basis of their saving faith. And again, what we're doing here, we're trying to identify a common theme in the words of Christ from the cross. So that was the first utterance from Christ in chronological order. But let's look at the second one. The Romans crucified Jesus between two robbers, which Mark and Luke point out fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 53 verse 12, which says that Christ was numbered with transgressors, transgressors rather. Initially, both criminals joined the Romans and Jews in mocking Christ, but at some point, one of them expressed saving faith, and with these words, and this is one of the most important prayers you'll ever read in the Bible, in Luke 23, verse 42, that criminal said, Lord, remember me. And because Jesus never turns away a repentant sinner, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That's in Luke 23, verse 43. And what a remarkable promise and what a remarkable demonstration of divine compassion towards a guy who was mocking him minutes before. 
Jesus, therefore, redeems criminals and receives them in his kingdom. Why, church? Because he is a friend of sinners. And I ask you then, have you ever seen greater compassion? Look at the third utterance from the cross. Mary, the mother of Jesus, and John, his beloved disciple, watched in agony as their Savior suffered on the cross. And now Christ, next words, reveal his tender care for his mother, already a widow at this point. He said to her, according to John 19, verse 26, Behold your son. And then to John, he said, Behold your mother. And church, that's how much he cares for people. In his agony, he considered the needs of others first. And that's the embodiment of selfless compassion. And therefore, I ask you, friends, do you know anyone more compassionate? Have you ever seen greater compassion? And his compassion hasn't changed in 2,000 years because the Bible says God is immutable. He will never change. But let's listen to the fourth utterance from the crucified Christ. It's a prayer again to the Father. And both Matthew and Mark tell us what happened here. In Matthew 27 and also Mark 15, Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, these words reveal the agony of someone bearing the punishment for the sins of the world. Now, these words are not caused by the trauma of crucified victims. And we know that because of what Matthew says in Matthew 25, rather 27 verses 45 through 46. He says this, Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And again, church, these are not the words of simply a traumatized victim from the cross. These are the words of someone who is facing divine wrath. Now God the Father had to turn his face away from the Son temporarily so that he wouldn't have to do that eternally for you and me. And we know that this is the case because this is a quote from Psalm 22 verse 1. Jesus is quoting the Psalms indicating that every messianic prophecy, specifically that one, points to him. Now is this uh, the three hour blackout. God demonstrated to the world that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. And I ask you, church and friends, I know of no greater compassion. Do you? Let's look at the fifth utterance here from Christ on the cross. Those short words in John 19, verse 28, he says, I thirst or I am thirsty. Now, what that tells us is this. While Christ was fully divine, he is fully human. His suffering was not lessened because he's fully divine. He's 100% God, 100% man. And the God-man, therefore, was placed on the cross for you and for me. And what the Bible says is he took the form of a bondservant being made in the likeness of men, according to Philippians 2, verse 7. He became one of us in order to rescue us. And that's why the Bible says he is a sympathetic high priest because he suffered like you and I would suffer. He thirsted from the cross. And I ask you, I know of no higher compassion than this. Do you? The sixth utterance here from the cross, moments before his death, Jesus spoke perhaps the most significant words that I've ever heard, a pronouncement to the whole world. And he said the simple words, it is finished. John 19, verse 30. Now, pay attention. He didn't say, I am finished. He didn't say, oh, brother, I am done. No, he was pronouncing a legal term, the Greek word tetelestai, which means paid and full. And that means that the wages of sin is death, according to Romans 6, 23. But Jesus Christ paid for that debt. The debt, therefore, has been settled. Divine justice has been satisfied. Undeserving and spiritually bankrupt sinners now can go free on the basis of faith because he has paid the price in full. Justice 
justice has been satisfied. And therefore, I ask you, because this was for his glory and on your behalf, have you ever received greater compassion? But listen to the seventh utterance from Christ on the cross. He says this, according to Luke, Luke 23, verse 46. Jesus crying out with a loud voice. Stop right there. Now, I want to tell you, crucified victims don't cry out with a loud voice because their lungs will not allow them to do that. Crucified victims die of suffocation because of collapsed lungs. And here is this physician, Luke, telling us that Jesus Christ cried out with a loud voice, demonstrating his power and demonstrating the purpose of his crucifixion. And he cried out with a loud voice and he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. And what that tells us, church, is that he wasn't killed by the hands of people. He laid down his life voluntarily for you and for me. And thank God he did, because otherwise they would have no opportunity for eternal life for you and for me. We would have to pay for our sins throughout eternity, which is an impossibility. In other words, Christ in six hours accomplished what you and I could never do in eternity. There are not enough days in eternity for us to atone for our own sins. That is why Jesus Christ had to lay down his life and commit his life and his spirit to the Father so that sinners can go free based on the substitution of Christ on the cross. Therefore, a church, I ask you, is there a greater compassion? Now, Matthew tells us what happens after this. The veil of the temple that leads to the Holy of Holies was torn from top to bottom, illustrating that total access now to the Father has been granted because Christ said earlier, no one comes to the Father except through me. The earth shook also, and rocks were split, indicating that the world would never be the same. Why, church? Because the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world, accomplished redemption in history. And you and I are the objects of his compassion. And that is the common theme of his words from the cross here. The words from the crucified Christ reveal that he is the God of compassion. And we are the objects of that compassion. But thank God this is not the end of the story. If that were the case, we would have no hope. Jesus Christ would have been just another one of those early leaders. And Christianity would have been a philosophy that would have died not too long after this. But that's not the end of the story. Why? Because he is risen. And the Bible says that he interacted with several people after his resurrection and before his ascension. So we're going to listen now to the words from the risen Christ. And I want to focus specifically on what happened on that one day, Resurrection Sunday. And we can understand, therefore, the heart of our Savior. So we looked at the words from the crucified Christ. And now I would like us to look at the words from the risen Christ and see what they reveal about his heart. The gospel writers tell us that many interactions happen between his resurrection and ascension. But because the resurrection is the most significant event in history, I do not want to gloss over it. So I'd like us to look at the details and the background of the story so that we can understand the context of his words. And let's see if we can identify a common theme and a common pattern here from his words. Well, the Bible says that Jesus died on a Friday. The gospel writers classify that as the preparation day before the Sabbath, according to Mark and Luke. On the same day, Pilate, surprised that Jesus was already dead, granted permission to a man named Joseph from Arimathea to uh, remove Christ's body from the cross. And Luke tells us that Joseph was a righteous man. That's in Luke 23, verse 50. And for that reason, he wanted to bury Jesus honorably, which he did with the help of a man by the name of Nicodemus. Before the Sabbath, they placed him in a tomb in a garden next to the crucifixion site. 
But let's talk about the morning of Resurrection Sunday. On the first day of the week, the two Marys, accompanied by a woman by the name of Salome, bought the spices to perfume the body of Jesus. In the meantime, God dispatched an angel to roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb, which caused another earthquake. So in three days, two localized earthquakes, and the Roman guards saw everything, and they fainted. They went in a coma. But let me tell you the reason why the angel removed the stone. The reason he did that is not to let Jesus out of the tomb. Why do we know that, church? Because if you are able to conquer death, you don't need any help removing a stone from the entrance of the tomb. The reason the angel did that is to allow people to see the empty tomb. And we will see some of these people went inside to verify that the body was not there. But the first interaction that we see here between Jesus and a person was this. When Mary Magdalene saw the stone rolled away. She was frightened, so she ran to Peter and John to report what she thought was a stolen body. Now, meanwhile, the other women went to the garden tomb to anoint the body of Christ, and they saw an open tomb. Now, they went in and verified that Jesus was not there. That's when they saw two angels, and one of them comforted the women, saying this, according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're going to read this from all three Gospels. The angels said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come and see the place where they laid the Lord. So it's interesting that the angels reminded the women that Jesus had promised that he would raise from the dead. And he said, he is risen as he said. Now, back to Peter. After he heard from Mary Magdalene, he ran to the tomb. And the Bible says John outran him. And according to his gospel, in John 20, verse 8, he says, he saw the empty tomb and he believed. Even though they, he hadn't seen the risen Christ yet. Both men returned home amazed and confused at what happened. But up until that point, nobody had seen the risen Lord because God reserved that honor to the Magdalene. By the way, Magdalene is not her last name. It's an indication where she was from. She was from a city called Magdala. So the Magdalene had the honor to see the risen Lord. And here's how that happened. She loved Christ very intensely because he had cast out seven demons out of her. The book of Luke tells us that in chapter 8, verse 2. She returned to the site, and she stood outside the tomb weeping and heartbroken, thinking she missed an opportunity, the opportunity to honor her Savior with the spices. Because again, in her mind, somebody had tampered with the tomb and taken the body. Heartbroken, Mary Magdalene decided to inspect the tomb. And that's when she saw two angels, one on each side of the surface, where they had laid Jesus. And the similarity of this image with the mercy seat described in Exodus 25, verse 20, is not a coincidence. But listen to what happened next. I'm going to read to you John 20, verses 13 through 16, so that we can, we can read the exact words of Christ to Mary Magdalene. The angel said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus' first recorded words after his resurrection brought comfort to a distraught disciple who thought everything was over. She thought there was going to be no hope. The man who loved her so much to cast out demons out of her, who gave his life now for her, she thought everything was over. But now he is standing in front of her and saying, Why are you weeping? 
And he mentioned her name. He quieted her troubled heart with a rhetorical question. He knew the reason why she was weeping. And the reason why Mary immediately recognized Christ is because he mentioned her name. It's because during Jesus' ministry, he said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Her sorrow turned to joy immediately from one second to the next because she knew that her name is recorded in the Lamb's book of life and Jesus pronounced her name. She jumped to his feet because Jesus said afterwards in John 20 verse 17, stop clinging to me. Now he's not being unloving. He's just letting her know that there is a mission for her to do and that is described in the 17th verse of John 20. He said this, go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my father and your father and my God and your God. So that's the first interaction of the risen Christ with the person in church. Here's what we learn. Four lessons. First one. Obviously, the resurrection is a verifiable historical fact witnessed by many people. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that over 500 people saw the risen Lord. But we just met the first one right here. So you can't get around the fact that there are plenty of eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Now, secondly, we must ask the same question. Why do we weep? If we are in Christ, church, because of his resurrection, we have reason to rejoice exceedingly because at physical death, we are ushered in immediately into eternal life and life with the one who will wipe away every tear from our eyes, according to Revelation 21. And knowing that, my friend, should transform your sorrow into joy immediately. Why? Because Christ is risen. Thirdly, he comforts us today by assuring that, my friend, if you are a believer in Christ, your name is written forever in the Lamb's book of life. He knows your name. And the day that you will breathe your last is the day that you will hear his sweet words calling you to the place he's been preparing for the last 2,000 years. As he promised he would do in John 14, verses 1 through 3, he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me, for I go prepare a place for you. And finally, We do well to cling to Jesus like the Magdalene did, especially in a time of crisis. We're going to the right source when you do that. But just like he had a mission for her, he has a mission for us too. And our mission is to go and tell. Go and tell everybody that he is risen. He's not dead. Christ is alive today. And because he is alive, we have hope and we rejoice. Our sorrow turns into joy immediately and we gladly obey. But let's look at the second interaction between Christ and a group of people in this case. His next set of words are directed to the women who were going to report to the disciples what they had seen and heard from the angels. But Matthew tells us in Matthew 28 verses 8 through 10 that they left the tomb quickly after talking to the angels with fear and great joy. An emotional wreck, basically. And they ran to report it to the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee. And there they will see me. So once again, church, we see the risen Lord providing comfort to a group of distraught people who were confused. Evidently, they missed the part that Jesus said he would raise from the dead, but now their faith is is revived. And Jesus Christ met them on the road, and the first words that he said to them were rejoice. The Bible says that he greeted them with the word rejoice, and nothing could have been more reassuring for them at that moment. Do not fear. Rejoice. Go and take word to my brethren. Now, what do we learn from this encounter, church? First, like these women, we are to rejoice exceedingly. The New Testament confirms that. Paul reminds us in Philippians 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. 
So what part of that do we not understand? In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16, Paul repeats the same command. Rejoice always. Not some of the time. Not when things are, are good. But rejoice always. He is risen. And those who belong to him will rise also. That's why we rejoice. And that's what it means to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So we are to rejoice always, church, no matter what's going on in the crisis, because our eyes are fixed on the Christ, not on the crisis. So we rejoice. He is risen. He is alive. It doesn't matter what's going on in the world. We know where we're going. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, and secondly, because we rejoice, we have nothing to fear. Because Jesus says, do not be afraid. And he follows that up by commissioning the women again and say, go and tell. See, that's the pattern. The risen Christ tells people to go and tell. First of all, he comforts them by saying, rejoice, do not fear. And calling them by name. And then he follows that up by saying, go and tell others what happened. We are to announce to the world, therefore, church, that Jesus Christ is alive and he is still in the business of calling people to himself. He still saves people today. He transforms them from the inside out. Why? Because he is risen. But let's look at the third interaction here, which happened in the afternoon of the first day of the week, Resurrection Sunday. And this is in the road to Emmaus. That's the setting of this third encounter here that the risen Christ had with some people. One of these men was a disciple by the name of Cleopas. The other one, Luke, leaves unnamed. But the text says that the risen Christ appeared to them. And at first they did not recognize him because God had closed their eyes for that. This was a divine act. And they were interacting and Jesus at some point confronted them with their unbelief. That's in Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. I encourage you to look at that passage. And they walked to Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. And when evening approached, they asked Jesus Christ, who they did not know was Christ, to stay with them and have supper with them. And during that dialogue, Jesus said perhaps one of the most significant sentences of that conversation, which set the tone for the rest of the interaction. He says this, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? That's in Luke 24, verse 26. And Jesus Christ, therefore, from that point on, opened Scripture and began teaching them from Moses to the prophets, the Bible says. And they recognized him, and he vanished from his, their eyes. And that's what prompted them to go back to Jerusalem to report what had happened to the rest of the disciples, to walk back to Jerusalem. But here's what we learned from this encounter here. There are many things, but uh, perhaps the, the most significant lesson for us is this. The death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. My friend, you should look at your life through the lenses of that truth because that's what changed the world. And it can change your life today if you're outside of Christ. Christ suffered and died and rose from the dead and he offers you eternal life. So that's the meaning of life. In case you were wondering during these days, what's the real meaning of life? I'll tell you, the Bible is very clear. The meaning of life is this. Christ died and rose from the dead. And it was necessary for the redemption of sinners. Otherwise, there is no hope. That is the meaning of life. And Jesus Christ comforted these guys who were confused on the road to Emmaus because he is the God of all comfort. Not only the God of compassion, but the God of all comfort. But listen to what happened in the evening of that day, Resurrection Sunday. Jesus appears in the upper room where the disciples were gathered, including the two who returned from Emmaus, the Bible says. And the risen Christ simply materialized in front of them, saying, peace to you. It's a customary greeting. And the disciples who, again, 
this is the first day after the Sabbath, resurrection day, the evening of that day, they did not immediately believe the account of the women who told them that they saw the empty tomb, and they did not expect a resurrection, and they thought they saw a ghost. <laughs> they thought that they were hallucinating. But he said to them, why are you troubled? In Luke 24, verse 38, why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? And he invited them to touch his wounds. And he also ate food in front of them so that they could verify that his resurrected body was real. Ghosts don't eat fish, church. And John records Jesus' next words. In John 20, verse 21, Jesus said to them, right after greeting them, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. So church, here's what we learn from the God of all comfort. The pattern in all three of these encounters on Resurrection Day is this. Jesus comforts the distraught disciples and he commissions them. Jesus could not have been clearer about his expectation from his disciples. He sends us into the world just like the Father sent him to the world because we have been called out of the world and now we're sent into the world to tell the entire world that Christ is alive. He is risen from the dead. Now, how do we know that he's addressing future disciples as well? Because these guys here were the representatives of the early church and they started the Christian movement on the power of the Holy Spirit and they obeyed that command going into all the world to announce that Jesus Christ is alive. We're talking about the week that changed the world but I want to ask you today is this week going to change your life? If you don't have hope turn to Jesus Christ. If you have questions or comments we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time... This is Truth with Grace.